This is Purple Elephant, where I bring the proverbial elephant to the table in order to deconstruct ableism, prejudice and misconceptions. On today's episode, I have three world-renowned disability travel bloggers, Steph Weller, Corey Lee and Sylvia Longmire. We talk everything from our mental health, the coronavirus and how everything has impacted us as disabled people and disabled travellers. I think you're going to enjoy this one. There's a very real threat at the moment that accessibility could get lost almost in the whole, with the whole COVID situation. And it's very important that people actually don't forget that accessibility is something that is needed by so many people in their everyday lives, you know, whether it be work, travel, just going about doing their daily routine. As a blind disabled traveller who is also immunocompromised, I wanted to chat with people who are sharing these same experiences. Welcome to my lovely friends and fellow panellists for this evening. I'm going to let them take centre stage. I want to quickly introduce them. First off, it's Corey Lee from Curb Free with Corey Lee, Steph Weller of Steph Weller, and Sylvia Longmire of Spin the Globe. I'm not sure about you guys, but my mental health has been up and down. And thanks to my medication being stopped, COVID-19 and the government's dealings with this, I've truly felt despondent and like a second-class citizen, even more so than usual. I wanted to discuss how the coronavirus has affected you mentally, physically, professionally and medically. And finally, our thoughts on the future of travel, how we've been left behind as disabled travellers, and what we think is going to happen moving forward. And if so, what would that look like? Yeah, I mean, I well, Sass has heard most of my rants because um, I've been in a similar situation with, um, to, to Sass where I've had treatment stopped to the point that I've had life-threatening episodes that have put me in hospital. Um, luckily enough, thank God, this morning, <laughs> I had my first round of my immunotherapy. So everything is slowly going back up um but there is like that really big worry in the back of my head that where I've had nothing now for this is the first one I've had in 12 weeks I'm like okay what's that done for me in those 12 weeks has that affected my chances and um things like that as well so yeah it's it's a scary time (laughs) yeah I um I mean I completely agree it's definitely um a scary time. So I live here in Georgia in the USA and pretty much the entire state opened up about three weeks ago. And so as soon as it opened, it seems like now everyone in Georgia thinks that, you know, since the governor opened the state that the coronavirus is magically gone now. And so whenever I'm like trying to do like a grocery pickup or anything, um, I mean, I would say maybe 5% of people like, have on a mask. It's a huge issue right now. And the main thing for me as a powered wheelchair user and someone that needs a care attendant full time is trying to balance, you know, getting a caregiver to come to my house and them feel safe, but also me feel safe that they've, you know, not had anyone around them for, you know, 14 days before they come to me. And so luckily when this all started, like back in early March, my mom was able to take off and she's now working from home. And so I did at least have that for me, but with actually getting a caregiver here and dealing with that, it's like a huge amount of stress, I think. Mm -hmm. For me here in Florida, I have MS, so I 
have a treatment that I have to get an intravenous infusion every eight weeks, but uh, they also, it's a medical facility. So there's people coming and going and I always worry about people coming and obviously they have a mandatory policy of wearing masks, but just psychologically speaking, I'm, be, you know, I'm trained to not be around anyone. But if I put off my treatments, then that could cause an MS relapse. And um, I finally went and it was great because it's a new facility and there were people sitting like every like five recliners. I mean, there was tons of space. The closest they had to get to me was to put the IV in. Uh, but I was wearing a mask. They were wearing a mask. Um, but, you know, you hear a lot of, uh, in the news reports about people with diagnosed, you know, conditions that are going undiagnosed because they're afraid to go to the hospital or afraid to go to the doctor. And I'm like, yeah, you know, right here, I, I overdue for my annual MRI, which isn't a big deal. It's not an emergency thing, but I have a couple of procedures that I need to do that either have been postponed for me, or I'm afraid to go get them done because I don't want to be around other people who are sick. So um, I, I do, I'm lucky that I have the medicine available to me, but actually getting it into my body is not as easy as just going through the drive-thru uh, pharmacy, you know, picking it up in the drive-thru and taking a pill. Like it's, it's like a, a multi-hour thing and being around other people and that's making me really nervous. Yeah, I'm, I'm really with you on that. And I think Steph, um, including myself, have just had to go through all of that um, here in the UK. So my medication stopped only for four weeks in retrospect to like maybe Steph. But for me, um, I have arthritis. My arthritis made me go blind. And for eight years, I was a wheelchair user. Um, and it arthritis, got... Really? Arthritis can make you lose your vision? Yeah. yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's because it's um, uh, an autoimmune condition and it attacks itself. So, uh, is it uh, rheumatoid arthritis or a regular kind of arthritis? I've got, um, ju I've got rheumatoid arthritis. So it's like juvenile. I got it from a child um, by sheer accident. I broke my arm when I was seven and I didn't realize at the time that that um, could be a catalyst for triggering wow. arthritis. And we looked into my family history and it took about a year of tests MRIs, lumbar posts, everything to then finally diagnose me um, with arthritis. So then, yeah, so from my perspective, um, I've, I've only been blind for about six years now, but I've had my, my condition since I was eight and I'm now 29. So I've lived with arthritis for the majority of my life, but um, this medication is kind of the reason I'm not in a wheelchair full time because I was for eight years. And just having it stopped for four weeks, I, I really, it really made me understand and appreciate not only the pressure that the NHS um, is under generally, but how vital the service is for those with low immune systems or who are inpatients regularly, whether you have a disability or a chronic illness of any kind. And, you know, I've, I personally feel that my doctor put me because he was the one that put me on the back burner, but didn't tell me why. And I, through logic, discussed um, with my GP that it is probably to do with um, COVID-19 and the precautions. But they didn't take into consideration how much of a knock-on effect not having that medication would be for me. And now I think I've actually got flare-ups in a new part of my body that I've never had before. Um, and it just kind of shows that for for all of us uh, whatever your circumstance that people people don't realize the impact that having a disability or a com 
um, an immuno condition, especially, can impact on a on a human's life. And when everyone's saying, "Oh, I just want to go outside and be free," I'm like, "Yeah, I, I'm not even allowed to like leave my house because I've been told to shield by the government." But I've also not been allowed to leave my house to get my own medication. So turning up to the hospital for the first time about a week ago was absolutely terrifying because I because I can't see. I didn't know what was going on. Um, but they were brilliant. They they know me very well, so they guided me through everything. But it just it it makes me worried that people in power are kind of still, as they always have done, treated disabled people like second class citizens. And instead of the pandemic kind of opening their eyes to the fact that we all need um, adjustments and support, we're just it's like we've gone back to the dark ages. I feel like we've just been forgotten. I think Corey and I are on the on the same page when it comes to this, as far as the way that other people are behaving and not wearing masks and their freedom and you know America. Um, so I'm like, look, you know, the the thing is, I don't want people to have their their freedom taken away. But I and they say, okay, well, you know, you have the choice: stay home or go out. And if you're immunocompromised, then stay home. Now, here's the thing: I could technically, if everyone else was wearing a mask, I would feel comfortable going out. If you know, with me wearing a mask, because two people wearing masks reduces the possibility of transmission by, I think, at least by 70%. So in essence, by somebody else not wearing a mask, that is taking away my freedom and forcing me to stay home because, you know, I, I can't go out because you're not wearing a mask. But people don't, at least here, people don't think that way. They're like, well, you know, I, don't tell me what to do. Uh, I'm like, well, you know, we just, we don't, culturally speaking, we're just not groomed as Americans to consider people outside of our immediate social circle. That's a very general statement. There are a lot of people out there that are extremely kind and considerate and have no problem wearing the masks to be considerate of other people. But for the people who don't wear masks, it's becoming a political statement. And, you know, I don't know, I I could go on and on about this, but it's very upsetting because, you know, Corey and I are certainly not used to being uh, you know, confined at home. <laughs> uh, we're used to being out in the world and out and about, and it's hard enough for us that we can't travel, but just being, you know, having our freedom taken away because somebody won't wear a mask and detracts from our ability to be safe out in public, like, it's it's been very, very frustrating here in the States. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, ex- exactly what Sylvia said. I mean, I agree 100% um, in America. I mean, it really has become extremely politicized, like the wearing a mask. Thing, and I've gotten in like way too many Facebook arguments over the past like week or two. Um, so I'm trying to look at Facebook less, but it's really, really difficult. Um, as you guys probably know, but uh, we, I mean, I, I don't know why it's so difficult, I guess. I mean, when that's the only thing we need to do is just wear the mask. Like I'm looking out for you, you're looking out for me. Like I think it's a, a kind gesture that anyone should be willing to do, but unfortunately i don't know they just won't so i don't i don't know what to do about it or you know how we could make them see the light i guess and even though even when i've like talked with people and tried to stress the importance and like these are people that like i know and like love and like that are really really close to me and they still keep saying oh but they're taking away my freedom if i wear a mask and it's like they just don't seem to be getting it and go, oh, and now, Sass, I don't know if, you're from, if you've heard of this. Now the latest is that you have some people claiming that they can't wear a mask because they have a disability. And oh. 
And the rest of us are like, you've got to be shitting me. It's yes. I mean, there's like, there's two conditions where you definitely shouldn't be wearing them. I only know that because I've got one. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I have to wear a mask when I'm out and about, but um, I've had to be really careful going out and about now because um, I actually found out that wearing a mask can actually set my asthma off. Um, and being spinal cord injured where I, um, so I've got, a, I've got a connective tissue disorder, which actually caused my spinal cord injury. And, um, because of the level of involvement with my lungs as well, I don't have a proper cough reflex. So for me, like at the moment, because it's so hot over here, I've been trying to not go out. It's quite scary today, actually, because I actually had an asthma attack in hospital because it was so stuffy oh. and they threatened to put me on the covid side and i was oh. just no i can tell you now it's my asthma that is kicking off big time um yeah it was just oh it's a nightmare i mean they they did my temperature and they realized straight away they were just like yeah okay it's definitely your asthma because as soon as they done like my ventilator and everything else everything was back to normal um I, I found that really scary that they were almost ready to take your autonomy away yeah. from you. <laughs> yeah. You are, you know, imagine someone who, for example, in whatever capacity, isn't able to speak, yeah. and and that they had an asthma attack like you, and in in the form of they couldn't communicate. Imagine what could have happened from there. It's, it's crazy, especially as well because mine's so like obviously like SAS. My mine my condition's so severe. I'm in the shielding group. Mm-hmm. Um. So especially like as well, because at least I was able to tell them. I mean, they they knew anyway from when I put my foot down to them yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the fact that I was just like, there's no way I have this because I've been shielding. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, the only time I've gone out is to literally go for a role when my mental health has gone so badly downhill because of this whole situation that mm-hmm. it's like, I need to go out the house or I'm going to be like I'm going to be going to a place I don't want to be going to um, mm. mentally and they were just like oh okay you know this side and the other but it was it's just an absolute farce um and I definitely think that in terms of the shielding and I know it sounds horrible saying this but it's like okay it's for our own good but at the same time it's like they're completely forgetting as they're thinking you know the 1.5 million who need to be shielded it's like okay we just put you in your house and then completely forget you and that's literally how i have felt mm-hmm. ever since i got that letter yeah um and i think that was another reason why um i really wanted to talk about all the different facets of it because i feel and you brought it up perfectly your mental health like declining um, my mental health declined so badly that I spent three weeks almost every day in bed sleeping because the other alternative was I was going to think of different ways to kill myself. <laughs> oh God, don't say so that. I, it, oh people God. are forgotten anyway. The mental health <laughs> epidemic is a crisis state. And then you add on top of the fact that there's people like the four of us who are all shielding, who are all very active in not only our local communities, but so you three have all got like my gigantic platforms. I'm like a little fish. But even in my platforms, I'm out all the time, three, four weeks a day, even if it's just up and down the UK. I don't travel as vastly as you guys do, but I'm not at home. Just because I have a disability, I'm not stuck at home. And it feels like, 
the government think, well, we're kind of keeping you safe and therefore that's fine, but they didn't take into consideration about people's mental health. First, yeah. I would say the first six weeks or six to eight weeks of this, I got back, my last trip was to Hawaii. I got back on March 4th and through, I would say the beginning of May. So most of, yeah, March and all of April, I, 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 I've always been a positive person, happy person, never dealt with depression or anything emotional or mental. I have some anxiety, but not to, I, I don't have to take anything for it. That's just because I'm a control freak. But <laughs> I actually sank into a real like situational, what my friends who actually suffer from clinical depression described as situational depression. And I'm like, what is going on with me? Like I would sleep for 12 hours and still be sleepy all day. I would sit and watch TV, Netflix, all day for days on end. I wasn't right. I mean, I didn't, I went a month without typing a single word and I'm used to typing every day, whether it's for the blog or whether it's for uh, the other job I have uh, with the university or just writing for something. And mm. I mean, I had two books that are halfway finished and I was like, I have all this time. I could just knock out these two books and boom, I'm done. Did not type for a month. And I'm, I'm like, what am I doing? I, I can't get motivated to put stuff away or do anything. And I just felt like a lump in my chair watching TV. And I just, you know, it, it was totally foreign to me. And then some friends of mine were like, yeah, you've, you know, you're mildly depressed or situationally depressed. And I'm like, I can't imagine how hard life must be for somebody who suffers from clinical depression on a regular basis and has to be medicated for it. If I'm feeling this crappy, just, you know, temporarily or only for like a few weeks. Uh, it was, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. And I can't imagine how bad it must be for somebody who has a more severe case of it. Yeah. I mean, I am, uh, I mean, I, I feel you, Sylvia. So, um, I, uh, went to Antarctica back in February and, uh, did like South America, Argentina, Chile, some like an incredible, like dream trip of mine. And then, it's like as soon as I got back in the States, it was like everything had changed. And it was like coming back to a completely different place. And uh, then like over that next like week or two after I got back in late February, it's like every day it was some like major announcement and something major happening. And so since I got back, I've, I think I've written like two blog posts and I'm like struggling to like get... Oh, no, like, really, like, I just, I really just can't find the motivation. It's like, I mean, why am I writing about these incredible places if nobody can even go there right now? Like, what's the point? And so that's kind of like what I've been struggling with. And I'm usually very, very optimistic. And like, I try to be positive and like in a good mood all the time. And it's just like, I don't know if it's like just looking at my phone all day and like looking at scrolling Facebook all day or what, but um, I mean, it's definitely like getting it to me mentally. And I think that started probably like a month after um, I started like self-isolating. And so, I mean, as a travel blogger, I'm definitely used to being on the road, getting out there, like going to conferences and being around, you know, 600 other people and just like having a good time. And now that, you know, I'm isolating at home, like I've been doing these Zoom chats and a lot of stuff like that. Um, and I'm trying to like be creative with the blog also and doing like some different things, but it's still such a huge, I don't know. It's just, it's just such a weird time. And I'm like every day trying to figure out like how, how do I process 
what's going on and what can I do differently about it? Yeah, that's, that's really, really fascinating that we've all, you know, in our own ways have struggled with this. And I think the people, um, able-bodied people that have never had any other conditions, mental health conditions, anything like that, I've got friends who are kind of almost coming to me for advice because they're like, Sassy, you know, you've written about this on your blog, so do you mind if I just drop in a comment or two in your direct messages to ask? And I'm like, go, go for it. But then I've, you know, as I said myself, I, I spent about three weeks where I completely shut myself off. And if, you know, the only things that I, <laughs> I really did of self-care was to have a shower every couple of days, and that was a stretch. Um, and I, I think that people forget that mental health because, and mental illness especially, because it's unseen, it is kind of even more debilitating. So they look at, you know, the three, three of you guys in wheelchairs and me with a guide dog and think, oh, that, they're a wheelchair user, their legs don't work. And, you know, she's a guide dog user, her eyes don't work, that's it. But for the majority of people, um, that have a chronic illness or a disability. 75%, as we, we all know, is invisible anyway. And yeah. health is included in that. And I just don't understand or comprehend why the government haven't thought, and I know you guys are in America and we're in the UK, so there's different rules anyway, but why they haven't thought to kind of check in with people who are on the shielding or vulnerable list and having to self-isolate. Because people, humans, we need company yeah of others so yeah i just it, it just baffles me steph do you have anything I'll, to say i'll be on i'll be i'll be and this is totally coincidental um i get my health care from two different places i'm a, a, a medically retired veteran so i have health care through both uh for medic for military retirees and then also through the Veter veterans administration and actually both of them uh humana military and also the the va the the uh, humana military called me yesterday and it was a number I didn't recognize. I hate talking on the phone anyway, but I answered it because I was bored. Uh, and it was Humana Military calling to see how I was doing. And the Veterans Administration called a while ago uh, to see how I was doing, you know, both mentally and physically. And, you know, they hadn't done that before because they never really had to. So um, I have really good health care, but I'm very lucky and I know I'm privileged to have that in the United States. Um, but I have had the, the uh, medical services call me to see how I'm doing, if I need anything, if I'm mentally okay, physically okay, making sure that I have friends or family, you know, that I can talk to and stuff like that. So, uh, so I was, I was actually pretty happy about that. That's really good. That's nice to hear a positive story because honestly, every, every story I've heard so far has been so negative. So I'm so grateful that at least someone's getting the benefit out of it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, my, I'm uh, in Georgia, so the state right above Sylvia. Sylvia's in Florida, and I'm in Georgia. So um, my health care, it is good. I mean, it is providing the care, you know. If But as I mentioned earlier, there is the struggle of, you know, trusting that they haven't been anywhere and around other people. And then what's really, like, I think the biggest kind of, like, slap in the face is when, like, the government says, well, okay, everything's opening up, but disabled people stay in your houses until June 15th. No. And then like, like nobody that's able-bodied seems to like, they don't know why that's even a little bit offensive, it seems like. And so that's something that really like caught me off guard when they started saying that. And um, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the government that we have in the U S anyway right now, but it's like when that happened, it 
really like took it to another level i think i spend a lot of time in the u.s and i'm not a fan of your government either so don't <laughs> worry um but are you in australia? sorry are you in australia no i'm from the uk I'm, i live near london sass lives uh, one side of london and i'm the other side of london so oh, okay i hear your accent and it sounds aussie to me so <laughs> <laughs> i sound aussie to everyone apparently apart from my own family so sorry go ahead i'm sorry um but yeah no i mean like with the whole thing i mean even in the uk everyone's just like oh you know i mean the one thing i find deeply offensive is when people my age have just been like oh it's only the vulnerable that are going to get ill it's only the vulnerable that are going to die and this that and that. and i've had friends say it right around me and i'm literally just oh. like you do realize i have been told that if i get this thing it will kill me mm. and it's like especially as well when i've already got i'm trying not to cry um, especially when I've, you know, I've just recently been diagnosed. I got diagnosed in February actually with a condition that potentially could kill me anyway, um, which is why I'm on immunotherapy. Um, and it's just so difficult because it's almost like I've, it's, it almost feels like I've had triple whammy because I've literally had like all of my normal care with my physio and everything else stop, and that's made my connective tissue disorder deteriorate. But then I've also had my, I had all my immunotherapy and my transfusions stopped and it got to the point where I ended up in hospital after having seizures and the doctors there were like, yeah, it's your condition you sh that you should expect it to happen right now. And that was really difficult for me to, to like take in because it was just like, I don't want to be here as much as you guys don't want me here, but you know what else can i do sort of thing um yeah it's i just oh it's so difficult it just feels like we're almost forgotten and you know that they just expect us to deal with it almost and it's like actually we still need our care we still need our treatment um and it does just i mean it when you see everything being plowed into to fight in the virus and that it's they're forgetting like people who need surgery who need treatment this i know it's like yeah you do wonder how many people are going like this is actually going to end up killing not just from the virus but from the fallout almost and it kind mm -hmm. of almost feels like that anyone who doesn't die from the virus but dies because they can get treatment because of that is almost like collateral damage and that hurts and that's very scary as well yeah i feel like um obviously i i'm not very aware of your like healthcare systems in in the us um so i don't want to say too much about that and get it wrong but with within the uk we we have a good health system and for the majority of the time it works extremely well but now this all being put on top of us, but we're being put on the back burner. I'm, I'm very much with Steph that I, I genuinely haven't seen people, even with just, um, say for example, in the blindness community, those who are maybe not immunocompromised, um, but they're being left behind because um, they, they're, the people generally were you know, going to shopping centers to get their, their groceries and they were being turned away because they were like, well, we can't assist you, you're blind. And it's like, yeah, but I've just come all the way here. And then, you know, they'd go home and then go online and the website would say, oh, there's, there's no slots available like for the next six weeks. 
And it's like, oh, okay, so I've turned up at the shop and there's nothing there. I've gone online, there's nothing there. Um, and and then, then you've got the, um, the added kind of disadvantage that blind people and visually impaired people are sometimes um, with the queuing system, especially those who have guide dogs, their guide dogs are trained to just walk to the shop door because they, you know, they don't know how to queue. It's the human that knows how to queue and they give them the signal. But when you don't realize there's a giant queue that's going all the way around the back of like a supermarket that's like the size of an industrial park and you're just walking up the normal entrance, you, people have had abuse thrown at them because, because of that. And I just think although I'm going off tangent from the NHS specifically, it, it makes me very worried that we're taking a massive step back in time. Uh, you guys with the ADA, and I know that that's not even great anyway, us with the Equality Act, and again, that's not great because there's so many loopholes and problems with that. But I just feel like where I at the very beginning was optimistic that this could be the kind of the changing point for able-bodied people, the government, the people in power and politics to see that not only can we contribute and we've got stuff to say and, you know, we're, we're great humans, but, you know, making things accessible in and outside of the home um, can be done at a very low cost. And, and now it feels like, well, all the able-bodied people want to go back to work, so goodbye disabled people. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, with one of my jobs, um, my biggest, con- one of my biggest contracts um, with, with the blog and um, that's how, it's how I got my consulting role actually. All of a sudden we've gone from work, work from home, all of a sudden they want me back in the office and it's like, well, hang on, I'm in the shielding group. So actually, hun, no, I can't. And you can keep on using Teams when you need me. And they're like, no, we don't want to use Teams. We want to use Teams for the redundancy thing and this, that, and the other that's still going on. Um, I mean, I, I know quite a bit about the ADA and I know the ADA isn't great. Um, I mean, there's some areas of the ADA that are a lot better than the Equality Act that we have to deal with. Um especially in terms of um, travel uh, with, air, with airlines and things. Because oh, you've got way better rights than we do. Oh. <laughs> just, oh. Not that they pay attention to that, of course, because I know that both you guys, Corey and Sylvia, have had to stand your ground quite literally and say, I'm not moving off this plane to <coughs> bring my wheelchair to the door. Whereas you do that in the UK and they won't do it. They're like, oh, uh, they just all flounder. It's horrible. See, this is where I'm quite lucky with my wheelchair. Mm. I'm very lucky with that chair, to be fair. My chair can go in the overhead lock on any aircraft, um, which is nice, but it's, it, does cause a, it, it does cause a bit of a kerfuffle at some airports. There's some airports that demand it goes in the hold, and it's like, no, that's not going in the hold, hun. Go away, <laughs> you're not touching my chair. Um, yeah, it's, but no, I just, I mean, and this is the thing as well, is um, a lot of people are already talking about travel and this and the other and how airports are doing X, Y, and Z. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that is being implemented at Heathrow. And one of the things that I, when I um, read about it, and I know people at Heathrow on the board, and I've actually said to them, I was like, it needs investigating because as a disabled person, it's actually very scary, is all this sort of technology, like the smart technology, like how they're going to minimise as much contact as possible. Mm. And they are looking at doing hands-free security screening. 
Now, I'm not allowed a metal wand to be placed over me because I've got two implant implantable medical devices mm-hmm. uh, in my body. And one of them, you put a wand over it and I'm in big trouble. And mm-hmm. the other one is a nightmare to fix. Um, and I said to them, I was like, so how's that going to work if a wheelchair user who's got an implantable medical device turns up? How are you going to do a hands-free pat down? It's, it's just not going to happen. Mm. what have you guys got over in america have you is there anything that they've said or you've read or heard so far about their protocols i've been avoiding trying to figure it out Corey, have you heard anything i have not heard too much about like what they're going to do about flying or anything like that and i really haven't been looking at it because i mean i know that i'm not going to be flying anytime in the near future so i'm trying to just like quit thinking about traveling all the time and like adapt to new mindset, I guess. So mm. um, I haven't really been thinking I and mean, looking into it too much. So Corey and, I are, Corey and I are in denial. My, my concern yeah. isn't even so much about security, but like when we board the plane, Corey and I both need to go in an aisle chair and we need people to pick us up and lift us and put us into the seat. So mm. If I were, I would be stressing out enough if I were able-bodied and having to sit next to somebody on the plane, but I don't have a choice in getting on the plane. I have to have people touch me and breathing on me just to yeah. get me in the airplane seat. So that's, you know, there, and no matter what protocols you do, the most you can do is have that person wear gloves and wear masks, but are they going to be switching their gloves every time that they have to go get a different person? And mm. people are going to tend to get complacent or lazy. So even if they're wearing gloves, they're touching multiple people with those same gloves. And I don't know if they're using, you know, different masks every day. So that's, you know, part one, I hadn't even thought about going through security and getting a pat down. So there's all sorts of stuff that I'm like, yeah, I'm not getting on a plane for, you know, I, who knows? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, but- I already know when I'm getting on a plane. So it's, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, um, it's quite, it's quite nice in a way that I um, do what I do because it means I have got a little bit of a head start on what to expect and um, things like that. But like you guys, I'm, I'm a wheelchair Charlie. If um, I'm very lucky with my chair actually, because before I got the chair that I've got now, I had to be carried. Um, I had to be put into an aisle chair and, and things. Whereas now I'm quite lucky. Whereas where if, if I'm savvy with my seat selection and I'm very careful and I I know exactly where to go on the on the on the flight. Um, and on the aircraft, I mean, it probably helps. I used to be cabin crew as well. So I know I know how to get around certain things. It's it's one of those things where I'm quite lucky in that I, as long as it's an air bridge, I don't need the aisle chair if I'm savvy with seat section, which is great because anyone that's ever been in one of those aisle chairs knows that whoever designed the things clearly hasn't been on an aircraft in an aisle chair because that was <laughs> too small for the aisles. Oh. Um, they're horrible. I, I mean, this is half the reason why I am so glad about my chair because the amount of times that I, I nearly end up out of that chair because they've tilted it wrong or they've just bashed me or this, that, and the other. And it's like, Corey I'm broke, not exactly Corey a big person. Right, Corey? Uh, I didn't break a leg, but they did um, pick me up and they like dropped me. Jesus! What? They like dropped me um, one time on like the aisle chair and then another time on like the armrest of the plane seat. 
Oh my god. Oh my god. Yeah, it was it did not feel good at all. <laughs> See, this is where they need things like eagle lifters in every single airport mm. because eagle lift I mean, I don't luckily I mean I had to use one um when I was first final injured just because I lost so much upper body strength, but I've been lucky in that I've regained it. Um but I remember when I mean when I used to get an eagle lift, it was like the best thing ever because I knew I was going to be safe. I knew that I wasn't going to be dropped. Um, I mean, I think the worst, probably the worst things that have happened to me have been um, the hoist not being put on properly when I had to be lifted uh, before I managed to get all my strength back. But also the fact that my old wheelchair, every other flight would be damaged in some way, um, which is the whole reason why... I shelled out £17,000, which is about $23,000 on two wheelchairs that can go in the overhead locker. Because it was like, I get them, it means I can still do my job. Mm -hmm. um, which... But that, that in itself is... It doesn't even be like that, but... Yeah. That in itself is crazy. And that the fact that, you know, a wheelchair being used by an individual for it to not be damaged, you've had to shell out that much money. Like a wheelchair in general costing so much money and yet, you know, a laptop costs nothing in comparison. And yet lots of people have to fund their own wheelchairs and power yeah. chairs and everything like that. And that really baffles me too. I had to fund my, my Tigre FXs. I had to fund both of them because they, the NHS wouldn't fund them. They were going to give me a wheelchair that I wouldn't have even been able to push myself in. Mm -hmm. which yeah i mean it's ridiculous mm -hmm. i mean the, the next the next problem i've got is because my eds is trying to persuade them to fund a smart drive which would mean that i can turn my tiger into an electric wheelchair mm -hmm. while still being able to put it in the cabin right and the likelihood of getting that funded is pretty much zero um so i mean we're looking into other ways of being able to do it because we have schemes in the uk sat on about i don't know if what america's got but we've got a scheme in the uk called access to work so that's one of the options that i'm actually looking at right now to see if they will fund it just so i can stay just so i can i can keep traveling and, and keep doing the travel blog but yeah it's, it's super scary because you just you just almost feel like especially with some of the projects that um i was working on before all this kicked off you kind of almost are like oh my god right so covid's happened what's going to happen to those projects the fact that you know our health system is forgetting us all what's it going to be in terms of companies as well mm. um like the social distancing in shops the thing that really is worrying me right now is certain shops like primark and there's a couple of department stores and things um, they have specific till points um, that are accessible. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that worries me is, if there's, obviously with the whole social distancing thing, are we going to be expected to queue with everyone else now instead of just being able to go straight to those till points? Or are companies actually going to keep those till points available for disabled customers? I, yeah. Mm it's really worrying <laughs> yeah i do you guys i i i profess i haven't really traveled too much in america is that like the same for you guys is that worries of yours i don't leave the house to buy anything so not so much on my case plus my chair is really narrow um uh, so i or i'm able to get groceries delivered to my house i've been doing that for about five years 
and anything I need to buy, if I can get it on Amazon, I get it on Amazon. I don't remember the last time I went to a mall to wow. buy something. Occasionally, maybe if I have to go to um, to Target, which is like just a huge, you know, superstore over here, mm -hmm. um, if I have to go there. But I mean, maybe once a year, um, if I have a gift card or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, it hasn't been as much of an issue because I don't have to shop in person. I think it might be more of an issue for Corey because he's he lives in a more rural part of Georgia. So I don't know. Corey can talk about that. I don't know if he can get stuff delivered like I can. Yeah. So uh, they actually won't deliver to my house. Um, what? I mean, Amazon will, of course, and let things in the mail, but uh, it's not that rural. But uh, we well, compared, compared to Orlando, it's all relative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Orlando's got pretty much everything there. Most yeah. of my most of my time is spent actually out in Miami when I'm in the US. So oh, that's a crazy place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a crazy place. <laughs> but yeah, as Steph was saying, like with um, the grocery stores and stuff, like at least. The ones that I've been to, they don't have like a specific aisle for like wheelchair users. So they're pretty, they're all pretty wide and like accessible and they don't really like have just one specific aisle. But um, the only thing that concerns me is like, again, with the mask thing. And so I do know that like at Whole Foods and Costco, um, they are requiring that everyone wear a mask. And so um, if I were to go, like that would be where I went. But I just have been doing like, grocery pickup and so you can just like go to the grocery store and they'll load it like into the back of your vehicle and they all like wear masks and gloves and like everything so i that, feel like that's kind of the safest thing to do right now yeah that's kind of happening over here um and i only know this because although i'm shielding um one of my friends is a is a worker he works in london underground and um he does shift work so it's the same principle that a lot of the supermarkets and are rolling that out over here that you can do the pickup where they they put it in they kind of have like an arctic lorry full of all your shopping and then they put it in the back of the car so like there's no contact between humans um right. which, which is pretty good um uh, just quickly just because i'm curious about this and and all of your viewpoints going back to travel and just just say for example not not on COVID-19, but would you, I'm, I'm thinking about how wheelchair users in general have to manage just getting on the plane with the assistance. Would you be open to the idea of having like wheelchair seats on, on planes like you do in like buses and stuff? Oh, I am all for it. 100%. Like that would be my ultimate, ultimate like travel dream would be to just like stay in my wheelchair. I think it would eliminate the wheelchair getting damaged. I mean, me being I have SMA, uh, spinal muscular atrophy, so my muscles are pretty weak. And like even getting into the aisle chair and into the plane seat, it usually takes at least like three people um, to help me get transferred. And so they're usually like holding my head and like, I mean, they're kind of touching all over me. And I know, I mean, with the current situation, I mean, the coronavirus like that would just not be safe at all because they do have to touch me and hold me up so much mm -hmm. because not really easy for me to like remain stable and upright without some help um and so yeah for me it's a little different because the chair i don't Corey has more requirements as far as for making sure that he's comfortable for his chair than i do so i travel with a different chair than i use at home not that my chair at home is that complicated i do want to get a more complex rehab chair so i can put my feet up but i need to be able to recline and put my head back or whatever at home when I travel, my chair is much smaller. It's a power chair. It's a wheel. 
Um, and I would not want to sit in that chair for 12 hours or eight hours. So for me, it's more, not that airline seats are that comfortable, but I try to fly business class when I can because I'm able to recline more, put my feet up because I have a lot of swelling in my ankles and stuff. So for me, it would be a lot more comfortable to be able to transfer to an airline seat, but I don't have the same needs as Corey. So you know, I advocate for that because I have so many friends who are in larger rehab chairs who need a lot of very custom designed supports for certain parts of their bodies. And I know they would be much more comfortable, especially for longer flights flying in their own chairs. Mm. And I get that. And I've been talking to the different foundations and organizations testing it. And at least from what I see, money is the biggest problem there. There are two, two big problems. Number one, money, the airlines don't wanna lose the money to take out the seat. Plus they have to redesign because a lot of the planes, you have to go through the space between, usually between lavatories, uh, especially on a, on a dual aisle aircraft, there's still a space between lavatories that you have to go through in order to get to that first row of seats, whether it's in coach or, or business class or whatever. And like Corey's chair, even my chair, which my chair is only 23 and a half inches, I think it's 50, 50 centimeters wide and it, it won't fit. So not only do you have to take the chair out and open up that space, but you have to open up the, the aisle. So there's that problem and the airlines aren't gonna wanna spend money to do that. Number two, they've tested the, the Q-strain system. So the restraints have, uh, are able to withstand more uh, G-forces than are required, at least here by the FAA, the, the, yeah, the, our, our you know, aviation laws. Mm -hmm. However, the problem, and I think this is where it's gonna get stuck and we're never gonna get past it. I hate to be so you know, pessimistic, but I'm a realist and I'm practical and I'm also a cynic, um, is that because every wheelchair is different, even if the restraint will hold you, at least for an airline seat, all the airline seats are the same. And you know how they're constructed and you know what materials they're constructed with. But if you're in a chair that doesn't have, like people are not gonna know what the tie down points are. So even if, you know, if you're in a situation, a crash that you, you know, is survivable, which actually happens more than you might think, if you have that restraint can be the best restraint in the entire universe, but if it's attached to a part of your chair that is not tested, for the FAA G-Force requirements, then that part of the chair can snap off and the chair is still gonna go flying. That's a liability. So the, so the airlines, in my opinion, are always gonna come back and say, well, that's fine that you've tested the restraint. We're actually willing to forego however many millions of dollars to take one or two seats out and widen the aisle, but you're limited to using you know, wheelchair A, B, and C because we've tested wheelchair A, B, and C, and we know that if we attach the restraint to this specific piece of the chair, then the chair's not gonna break or fall apart when it pulls on the restraint. And obviously for practical reasons, you know, not everybody's gonna be able to use chair A, B, and C. So, you know, I'm, again, I'm all for the movement. I think it would, it would be incredibly helpful and encourage a lot more wheelchair users to fly if they knew they could stay in their own chairs and obviously reduce the potential for damage. But from the airline liability perspective, uh, you know, they're not going to run the risk of a wheelchair that they don't know if the wheelchair is going to co come apart or break apart if there's, you know, a really strong G-force on there. And I don't see a lot of people talking about the, the, the wheelchair equipment aspect of it, just the, the airplane and restraint aspect of it. There is a lot of talk going about the wheelchair aspect of it. Um, I only know this because I am, as part of my contract and consultancy stuff, one of the projects um, that I'm working on uh, alongside Airbus at the moment um, is to do with wheelchairs and accessibility. 
there's quite a few problems and there's a hell of a lot of red tape to get around, especially with the European Aviation Safety Authority. Um, so restraint systems being one, um, especially with different wheelchairs. For example, I mean, my wheelchair, because of how it folds, is not allowed to be tied down whatsoever. I'm not even allowed to travel in a moving vehicle with it. Um, wow. Personally, because I need to be able to change position every two hours, um, it's actually better that I didn't stay in my wheelchair anyway. So I travel business and first class all the time, uh, whenever, wherever I'm going, just because then I've got the recline to be able to trans and sort of move myself and transfer and things like that. The big problem that a lot of people aren't speaking about is when it comes to electric wheelchairs, which is the batteries. Mm. Some electric wheelchairs aren't suitable for air travel whatsoever and people don't realise that. And I've spoken to people who have turned around and said to me that I'm talking crap when I say that. I was only crew three months, but in that time I was on flights where we had battery fires in the hold from wheelchairs where people thought they had a dry cell battery and they were tagged as dry cell and actually they were lithium. And believe me as crew, that's a very, very scary thing to go through. There's also obviously survivability, this, that and the other. You have, I mean, people don't realise this when they're saying, oh, but we can travel on buses and this, that and the other. In, with, with, I know I'm going to ruffle feathers here, but a vehicle accident on a road, the G-forces are completely different to... A plane crash. I can simply say that because I was in a crash when I was younger. So it was it's quite funny actually because a lot of people thought I was gonna be put off flying for, for life and I, I never was. All I say was it it was just an interesting way to land back in London. <laughs> we had no, well we had no idea. We had no idea that there was actually an emergency. Um both of our and both the engines on our plane failed 30 oh, seconds before landing. Well at least it was 30 no seconds idea. and not 30 minutes, I guess. Yes. So very different. Five hundred feet above. I mean, I I actually flew with the captain who was on that on that flight mm -hmm. crew as well back in 2015, and um, I turned around to him. I was just like, just so you know, I'm putting all my trust in you because you've already saved my bacon once. Even like when I see him now, it's it's kind of like a little bit of a joke. Um, when we see each other in Heathrow or at Waterside, it's a little bit of a joke. It's like if you're on my flight, that's cool because I know you're going to save my ass. <laughs> Do you mind if I um kind of switch topics slightly? Um, just because there was one more point I wanted to to get. That, I hate to interrupt you. I have a call at three o'clock, so I'm going to have to bow out of the conversation. Okay, no problem. Well, thank, thank you so, so much for this. joining us. Thank you. It's good to see you, Corey. Steph, it's nice to meet you. I friended you on Facebook. Uh, yeah, I've just accepted. So. Okay. Awesome. Take care, everyone. Thank Take you, care. Steph. Thank you. Bye. Bye. The last question I was I was going to ask um, was about, and if you feel comfortable answering, about the financial impact that COVID nineteen's had on um, you guys, because oh you know we're all self employed and run our own businesses. So I just and and travel with it being especially travel based. We've all got blogs. How that's impacted you, and do you is it has it made you fearful or worried or do you, are you the type of person that has eggs in lots of different baskets and you're just balancing um, I'm scared shit. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> excuse my language, but so I'm quite lucky in that when I do get my big contracts, I do have savings and I do have my investments, but 
um sass knows this i'm in the middle of a house move um i just i accepted an offer on a bungalow back in november and and luckily enough it's a cash purchase we're not doing mortgages because otherwise it would have been completely off um, but one of the biggest problems that I've had is where I'm not actually fully working. I've got a lifestyle um, side of the of the of the blog. It's more YouTube and my Instagram that does that. Um, my blog now is purely travel related. But I, yeah, I am very very worried because although my biggest contract, it's not where I get the most of my income from. Mm-hmm. and it's quite worrying at the same time because obviously I could be ma- made redundant from BA but at the same time all of my ad revenue is gone because I'm not getting ad revenue from my travel channel because I'm not um I'm not posting at the moment mm-hmm. I know other travel bloggers who have posted and have gotten a ton of backlash. So I've decided that the 12 backup blog posts that I currently have aren't actually going to go out until after lockdown is completely over and travel is started back up again. Um, just because I can't I can't be dealing with that backlash right now on top of everything that's going on in my personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, when is my income finally going to start up? Um, in the UK, we've got a self-employment like scheme that gives us eighty percent of our profits over the last three years for three months or what, like average or something. I can't remember how it worked, but mine wasn't much because I only started blogging in December twenty sixteen. So I've obviously they've included my first year, which was hardly anything. And it's like great. Well, it doesn't actually take into account what I'm earning now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, for me, I mean, I'm I'm definitely worried. Um, so, uh, one of my I signed a contract in like January with a, com- a huge travel company. I won't say the name of it, but everybody knows it. Uh, it's a really big one. I was saying like a blog, like blogs for them every month. And so then, about a month ago, they canceled that contract, and we'll pick it up like whenever the COVID-19 situation was over with. And then from my, um, I did, I recently started like doing like group tours, uh, back in 2018. And so I do like wheelchair accessible group tours and I was supposed to do three tours in Costa Rica this month actually. Um, and so all of those were postponed until next year. And luckily, I mean, everyone they did that was going on the tours, they did agree to reschedule except for like two or three people. So we were lucky with that. Um, but it, I mean, it's really been tricky. Like I guess trying to figure out, you know, how to be creative. So I'm trying to like do new things on like a Facebook live series where I'm like interviewing destinations and that's something like I've never done before. So I started that like two weeks ago. And then I, um, after I went into self isolation, I got like really bored. So I finally, I decided to finally finish uh, my children's book. And so I've been like working on that nonstop and trying to promote it and get those sales in. So I, I mean, I am finding ways to be creative and like get things done, done that I've been like just kind of putting it, putting off forever. But I mean, I'm definitely losing a lot of money too. So I mean, definitely not as much as coming in now as it was in like February and January. So it's definitely an issue yeah and i i think that was another topic that i i guess that most people unless unless you're in that world they're not talking about because 
travel the travel industry itself has taken a nosedive and if you were reliant on that as part of your income then of course that's going to have dried up but it's so uncertain for everyone right now that I feel although there's nothing much we can do I I'm really like happy and excited to see people like yourself Corey who are expanding in different ways and trying to create different avenues for themselves or carrying on with projects they were already doing because I think I may be speaking out of turn here but it it can almost help your mental health as well um, knowing that you've got something to keep going for Um, whereas someone like myself I have kind of only really got into the travel industry in the last two years and I'm still very new my following is very small I've had some good opportunities and kind of this year slash next year was going to be my big break so for me although I hadn't had a massive hit in lack of income I every opportunity that I had on ongoing has now ended so it's kind of like for me um where where do I go do I carry on with the the blogging you know as a passion as I kind of have for years anyway or or do I just kind of wait until we go back and and see if I can push all these projects and see if people still want to work with me um and in what capacity they'd like to work with me because again being immunocompromised I I would love to travel but I'm not going to put my health or anybody else's health in danger by doing that until you know I really truly know it's safe so how can I how can I promote travel without without traveling um yeah yeah, and I thought that was I was really interested in what you were saying there at the beginning Steph how you know you you've almost dried up all your content on purpose um because of the backlash whereas I feel I've slightly become the opposite I'm not posting on social media very much um but I've had because I had so many projects ongoing all the kind of YouTube stuff that I was doing because that wasn't income based um, that was more a side project to build up my own portfolio. And I'm pushing those things out because they're, you know, the odd UK break or whatnot, but they're still travel. And apparently like some of the stuff I've been seeing online is some people are actually wanting travel content purely for the fact of escapism. Yeah. So, if, I, so yeah, yeah. If, if you're almost thinking, I don't want to because it seemed insensitive. Um, yeah, I would honestly almost, do the opposite and yeah. push stuff out and see where things take you. You never know your income and your views and everything might increase. It probably will still take a hit just now. But I, I definitely know there's people already talking about through, for example, I don't know, like Lonely Planet and others that they want to book all their holidays still. And there's so many bloggers and YouTubers in the travel space, even the ones who've got like long, long form content that are doing exceedingly well in comparison because people have the time now. They almost want the one day off more because they haven't got it. Yeah, I've been wondering, like, do people want to see the content or not? And so a few weeks ago, I was like, I'm desperate to just, like, get out of the house and, like, see something new. So this past weekend, I booked to stay at, like, a cabin <laughs> and um, in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which is only, like, a two-and-a-half-hour drive from me. And so um, I stayed at the cabin, like, totally distanced did not get anywhere near another human being and i did like a facebook live video showing the accessibility in the cabin and it has had like so much engagement like it's insane like it's had over five thousand views in like the past two days and something like that is something that like three months ago 
I would have never had so many people watching that. And now I think people are so desperate and anxious to like get out there and finally see something different that I think the content is performing even better than ever. Um, but I mean, there, there definitely is some content that I'm not going to be pushing out. Like, I mean, I'm definitely not going to be flying or promoting flying or anything mm. like that. But yeah, that's the thing. Most of my backup is to do with flying, which I think is why right. I've actually pushed it right now. Um, yeah. Because I've got four reviews that are to do with flying. That um, it's quite funny because I I kind of knew that I was going to have to slow down on my travel this year because of the amount of surgeries and spend. I mean, one of the things that I've been doing at the moment is focusing sassel nose is focusing more on my lifestyle YouTube channel now um just because where so much of my travel is hotel reviews and flying um but one of the things that i am looking at potentially doing when lockdown first starts really coming down is more of the putting out the domestic reviews first and then my overseas reviews afterwards it's quite daunting i think <laughs> yeah how did you find that traveling corey like the fact that you said it was like two and a half hours and stuff away like did you feel like you were traveling or did it feel like you were still in the midst of a pandemic you just happened to be away i mean when i was like at the cabin and like in the national park it felt like i was on a vacation but then when i was like driving through town it's called like pigeon forge is the name of the city <laughs> and there were literally thousands of people on the streets like no mask on, doing nothing, like dining in the restaurants, going in attractions. And I was just like driving through the city and it was really like astounding. And like, I, I it was unbelievable how many people there were. I mean, it's insane. But uh, I mean, when I was at the cabin and though in the park, it was amazing. And I mean, I'm really glad that I did it, but it was also very stressful just to see that many people out and about and not really caring. So I think that was kind of the hardest part about it. I don't know um, if they do it in the US, but I know European carriers, um, if you're a PRM, you are meant to have a briefing done before um, takeoff. So your own personalised personalized briefing sort of thing. I've, ne I've never had that. You've never had it? Oh, wow. Okay, I don't know if the FAA have something different, but in the, yeah, in Europe, you're supposed to have your own, you're supposed to have a briefing done um, before, um, just in case of emergency and things. Most Do you of mean where the cabin crew come and speak to you personally? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I have that, yes, yeah. yeah. BA are the best at that, but uh, I've been on, because I tend to do budget airlines because of my budget. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, um, BA is definitely the best yeah. for that. I was just going to say, I have had that done in Europe, actually, but never in the US, I don't think. Yeah. It's an EASA directive um, for PRMs and um, passengers with uh, with any additional needs and things which i hate the way they word it i absolutely hate the way they word it i'm just like no that that that's a different question or topic i guess do you do you identify as a disabled person and do you use like person first language or others i always say that i'm a like i always say that i'm a disabled person mm -hmm. um but it's kind of really weird because I've always said ever since like my spine happened and things and I don't know if it's like I don't know if it's selfish or not I, I just don't know but I always say I, I don't feel like my condition is what disables me I feel like I'm disabled by society and society's perceptions of disability yeah because the majority of the stuff that 
is, I mean, let's face it, in terms of Equality Act and accessibility in, you know, the in 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 quotation marks. Um I just I kind of feel like it's made up by people who just haven't got a bloody clue whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've only got a Corey. I don't know if you've I, I don't know if you've been ever been to London, but you've only got to look at the London Underground, and it's a uh, yeah. fucking pain uh, in the ass. I did not use the Underground. I only it's a it's a pain in the ass. It really oh. is. Um, until three years ago, you couldn't even get to Oxford Street as a wheelchair user. Yeah, I remember that. Um, I mean, when Bond Street actually got an accessible entrance, it was like hella flipping Lula, <laughs> but. I mean, even now, um, t- only twenty percent of tube stations have ex- like have fully street platform accessibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have managed to kind of make eighty percent of the tube accessible to myself, but that's only a combination of the fact that a charity that really helps me after my spinal cord injury does some crazy, crazy courses on wheelchair skills. And because yeah, chair, you've uh, got some sick skills, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, just, just like, just, just pull a, just, just pop a weenie. Yeah. Um, it's quite funny getting. I, I stayed over at Sass's um, uh, <laughs> the year after we got very drunk in London. Yes, we did. <laughs> and Sass was just like, "Are you even getting into my house?" And this is bearing in mind that I still, my hand was in a cast. Broken. Well. Yeah. My yeah. hand has been in the cast since November. I'm currently ra- waiting on surgery for it. Um. And I was just like, yeah, don't worry, it's not a problem. I can get in, it'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have to be creative as a wheelchair user, I think. Definitely. So. I mean, I've I've been taught how to go up escalators in my chair, which is quite scary. Oh. But it has been, wow. I've do, I do it so much on the underground now. Um, yeah. I mean, I'll do little ones on my own, but bigger ones like at Westminster and Victoria when the lifts have been out of order I refuse to do them on my own I have to be with people that I trust to be behind my chair just in case I get it slightly wrong Mm -hmm. um but it's yeah it's just oh it's really like it's really difficult because there's friends that I've been with as well um, who are travel bloggers when we were at WTM last year. Mm-hmm. Um, we were going to one, we were going to an after party and they literally said to me they didn't realise how inaccessible London was to a disabled person until they realised when they came around London with me and we were trying to work out how the hell we get from the Excel Centre to Covent Garden mm-hmm. without yeah. having to basically uber it all the way over which would have been about 40 quid Mm. what's it like for you Corey? because you um living a little bit more rural is it is it the same for you do you find transport and stuff accessible for you or not accessible um so there really isn't any public transportation where i live um so i have like a, a private accessible van that i have um and so that's really the only mode of transportation that i can use here where i live but if i'm traveling i mean you were talking about the underground, but it made me think a lot of the New York subway. And so, oh my I've, god, don't get me started on New York. Oh, I've, been, I've been to New York like many, many times, and I've been trapped underground in the subway for like five hours. Before oh gosh, the elevator wasn't working, and I mean, it's it's, it's wild. So, yeah, That's it reminded me a lot of that. 
See, this is the half the reason I, I basically took the plunge on being taught how to get up an escalator in my wheelchair was purely because of an incident in New York. <laughs> how ironic. It's just, yeah, I was like, never again. Um, because one of the things, I mean, I, I take two, around 200 flights a year. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so it's, yeah, uh, just be purely because of the blog, but, um, traveling on French trips with them. And also, wow, we don't know if I am going to get it back because of what happened a couple of weeks ago. Um, but I'm a private pilot as well. So I, I fly an adapted aircraft. Um, Steph, when are you taking Corey and I on holiday or (laughs) (laughs) in first class with you as the pilot? (laughs) first class for me is a part oh my god it's only a little piper that i fly i know i'm I'm taking the mic but i know oh my god do you know what though i do it's quite funny actually because the girls um and a couple of the lads down at ability they organized for the piper that i fly to be flown across my house the other uh the other day oh that's amazing i was like oh my god and it's really difficult because we're right at the bottom of the runway farnborough airport which is a mm-hmm. it's a restricted air zone mm-hmm. um and normally you're not allowed to fly over farnborough airport unless you get specific permission to yeah and they managed to get specific permission to fly over and i was just like there's my plane <laughs> <laughs> okay guys so only because i could talk to you all day i i want to say thank you so much i know sylvia isn't here but thank you to all three of you for joining in this discussion but is there anything you guys would like to kind of say as a final round off anything you'd like to promote or plug um that we can add into the show yeah uh yeah thank you so much for having me i mean um, it was really an honor and a lot of fun and something different to do and it was good to see you guys and kind of have a break from everything else all of the craziness for a little while so thank you very much but uh i guess um if anyone has any questions about traveling as a powered wheelchair user feel free to visit my blog at curbfreewithcoreylee.com and uh or email me um, if you have any questions at curbfreecoreylee at gmail.com yeah i just want to say thank you um for opening up the discussion it's especially in this time as well it's so important that we don't forget about accessibility and all the other things that come with it because especially as well there's there's a very real threat at the moment that accessibility could get lost almost in the whole with the whole covid situation and it's very important that people actually don't forget that accessibility is something that is needed by so many people in their everyday lives, you know, whether it be work, travel, just going about doing their daily routine. But yeah, thank you so much for having me. And for anyone who has any questions specifically about luxury travel uh, as a disabled person or as a wheelchair user, uh, check out my blog. It's just search Steph Weller in Google and it will come up straight away. So. Perfect. Well, Sylvia isn't here to um, uh, say goodbye. So on her behalf, I'm just going to plug her blog, spintheglobe.net. And she's Sylvia Longmire on most platforms or Spin the Globe. You can find her there. Um, And these three individuals are very open, very friendly human beings that I'm, I'm very lucky to know. So yeah, please feel free to ask any of us any questions. I'm kind of more in the travel background, 
rather than in the forefront. But if you want to talk about blind travel or traveling with a chronic illness, then yeah, shout me out. Um, I'm Sassy Wyatt, uh, Sassy Wyatt Official or thinkingoutloud-sassystyle.com. Thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Purple Elephant, disabled travel bloggers talking lockdown and our mental health. With me, your host, Sassy Wyatt, Cub Free with Corey Lee, Steph Weller, and Spin the Globe. I think this has been a really insightful topic. And even though right now, as I'm recording this, the UK is easing its lockdown and America's been off lockdown for a while, there's already peaks in and around the US and the UK. So we don't feel safe. Please think about disabled people as you go back to your normal lives. And remember, not all of us have this luxury yet. Stay safe, and I hope this episode helps you to become a better human being.